his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll check in with a group that has made starting conversations about a particular type of cancer more of an opportunity than in the past. We'll also meet a Pennsylvania group that has partnered with the United Way of Wyoming Valley to teach the community about recognizing signs of child abuse and reporting it without fear. And we'll speak to a researcher who has been studying the climate in high schools regarding discipline. Each year in March, the Northeast Regional Cancer Institute gets a casual conversation going in offices and homes about colon cancer. The concept of Casual Day, which stands for Colon Cancer Awareness Saves Unlimited Lives, was suggested by a family that had lost a loved one. The event is coming up on Thursday, March 29th. We spoke to Amanda Marcajani, Community Relations Coordinator of the Northeast Regional Cancer Institute, about the importance of Casual Day. So I am the staff contact for this campaign. It's very exciting because I get to work with all of the team captains and all of the business community that are behind and support this event and make it what it is. This year is the 15th year of this campaign, which is very exciting. It started with Mara Stayback and Michael Moran, a brother and sister duo that their mother had uh, been late stage diagnosed with colon cancer. She had never had a screening prior to finding out about the diagnosis and shortly passed after that. And they decided that they wanted no family to go through what they went through. And they came up with this event called Casual Day, which stands for Colon Cancer Awareness Saves Unlimited Adult Lives. And uh, here we are now in the 15th year. It started with with them just selling t-shirts to family and friends in Mara's kitchen, tying ribbons around t-shirts, to now affecting and distributing shirts to over 8,000 individuals throughout Northeastern Pennsylvania. What is their reaction to what's happening? I think it's overwhelming for them. I think that, you know, they really, the campaign has stayed true to what they wanted it to be, which is really to raise the awareness about early detection and screening of colon cancer. And we're just happy that they came to the Cancer Institute and wanted to partner with us and that we're able to continue to have their mother's legacy represented and share their story so that no one really has to go through what they went through. And as somebody who is the point person for all this, how many times do you hear from people you know, this started this conversation at my office and it was a lifesaver. We hear that very often. Um, A lot of the feedback is many people that have been personally affected by cancer, um, whether it's a coworker, a family, a spouse, um, a sibling, anything like that. And 
Um, they're very connected with the cause, um, which is why they decide to be a team captain and really have their company and their family and friends rally around it and be that advocate for us. Um, again, we really want everyone to have that casual conversation. And oftentimes you find out through being a team captain that maybe you had a family member that had cancer and no one ever spoke about it. Because as we know, probably 50 years ago, cancer was not talked about as it is today. Um, and we're just glad that people can have those casual conversations now so that they can get uh, whatever they need to do with their health and their family history can get that aligned and get the best care for them possible. So it's not only in an office setting, but it goes with people who are getting involved in their, you know, their mom or their cousin sees their shirt or whatnot and says, hey, you know, uncle so-and-so had this. Yes, yes. Some of the teams, it's really just family members that have had someone pass or they're honoring or remembering them and they really just want to be involved. So it doesn't have to be a company. It really is just someone that's passionate about helping to raise the awareness about colon cancer screening and early detection um, and really rallying their friends to take part in it by either having that $20 donation for a t-shirt or the $5 donation for a pin. How has the community, the business community, received you? I think they've received us very well. We have a lot of huge sponsors um, that have their names or logos are on the back of our t-shirt and they're really what allow us along with the team captains to continue this event without their support we would not be in the 15th year of this campaign so we really just want to thank all of our sponsors and the team captains for supporting the cancer institute now we're in our 26th year and um, you know really at the end of the day we would we would want to be put out of business um, so that we could find a cure for cancer but until then we will continue to ease the burden of cancer in northeastern Pennsylvania. If people are hearing your voice and they think we want to get involved in that, how do they get involved in this? They can either call our office, which is 570-941-7984, or they can go on our website, which is cancernepa.org. The deadline for ordering the t-shirts has passed, but if anyone's interested, they can still participate. We have a number of retail locations throughout the community, and those will be on our website, which again is cancernepa.org, or you can call our office at 570-941-7984. We also had the opportunity to speak to Karen Rechak, Cancer Surveillance Coordinator, about the trends she sees in cancer statistics. Every year we do an annual report where we look at cancer in Northeast Pennsylvania, specifically the incidence, how many new cases are diagnosed, and the mortality, how many people die from their disease. And we look at the top 23 cancers, the most common cancers, and compare ourselves to the rest of the country. And then we use that information to direct our programming. You know, what what are the disparities? What are the issues, the cancer issues here in NEPA? And then again, we use that information to help us decide what the community and what healthcare practitioners may need to know. Where do you get the data from? The information comes from cancer registries. Cancer is a reportable disease, Sue, that not everybody realizes that. And the Northeast Regional Cancer Institute actually houses a regional cancer registry that covers many of uh, our hospitals and practices in the area that treat and diagnose cancer. So those incident cases are are diagnosed and then sent to the registry and that information is then reported to the state. And they collect a variety of information, demographic information, type of cancer, stage of cancer, and then the state um, 
houses that data, and they also release uh, annual reports. It's been a while since we talked, and I'm sure you have new data to tell us about. And I don't know, you want to do just an overview of the data? What are you seeing? Because you've been here for a while, what do you see when you look at this data? We're going to talk today specifically about colon and rectal cancer, and that's cancer that occurs in the large intestine and the rectum, which, you know, usually is... is the main purpose is to store and then evacuate waste from the body. Um, these cancers, uh, since 1980, when we've been collecting data, have been higher. The incidence has been higher here in Northeast Pennsylvania than the rest of the country as a whole. Good news is that gap is closing. Back in 2000, when we first did our surveillance report, we had about a 30% excess of colorectal cancer here relative to the U.S. Now that's about 15%. So that's the good news. The good news also is that nationally colorectal cancer incidence is decreasing over the last two decades, and the same is true here. So that's the good news uh, that we have to report today, Sue, and, and we're always looking for good news. And we think the reason that we're seeing uh, this decrease is possibly better screening. And that's what our Casual Day Awareness Program is all about, is making sure people are aware of the disease, who it happens to, what the signs and symptoms are, what they could do to have that cancer diagnosed early if they do uh, have that cancer, and possibly even prevent it through screening. Screening, um, we really screen to find that cancer early when treatment is more effective, but in the, um, in the event of colorectal cancer, we can often prevent it from occurring by removing those precursors to cancer. And what I mean by that, um, the precancerous or the polyps that have the potential to become cancerous. And we can do that through screening. Do you attribute any of this decrease, the good news part, to your efforts to get people to be more open about this discussion? I think so, Sue. Um, you know, nationally, the same trends are going on. So, you know, we certainly can't take all of the credit, but we really do feel that our efforts over the last 15 years to make the community aware, to make healthcare providers aware that it is an issue here because we do have more colorectal cancer than the rest of the country. I think our efforts, um, you know, media, your, you know, your help, um, other media outlets that have helped us and um, our, our push to make sure that everyone knows about this disease, how devastating it can be because so when we diagnose this early, the five-year survival rate is 90%. That means Five years after you're diagnosed, if it's in the local stages, you're alive, 90% of people are alive. If it's the stage, what we call stage four, distant disease already spread to other parts of the body, that five-year survival rate drops to 14%. So we really want to make sure people are getting screened, diagnosed early, or again, preventing the cancer from occurring by removing those precursors. Talk about the screening. There are several options. Not every option is good for every person. Uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about it, and, and that's what the casual day effort is all about, having that casual conversation with your family and also with your healthcare practitioner. We have stool-based tests that can be done in the privacy of your own home. We have what we call direct visualization, such as colonoscopies, sigmoidoscopies, and then certainly virtual uh, colonoscopies, which is done with the CT. So there are options, and as I said, 
you know, not one size fits all. So talk to your healthcare provider, what's best for you, um, you know, your other comorbidities, things that might be going on with you might um, dictate which test is best for you. In terms of family history, how crucial is that? Everything I've been talking about so far has, has been really for average risk individuals. We talk about high risk or an increase in your risk when you have certain uh, you meet certain criteria. One of those would be a family history, not only of colon cancer, but also of polyps, inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and, and certainly also hereditary cancer syndromes. Now, only about seven to 10% of cancer is due to hereditary cancer syndromes. However, we talk about a familial uh, component where families may have more cancer than others. It doesn't necessarily mean it was a hereditary cancer that was passed on from one generation to the other. It could just be because of shared behavior, shared environment. All right, let's talk about some of the behavior and environment which may increase your chances of getting or being diagnosed with colorectal cancer. What what happens in that environment? First of all, you know, when we talk about um, environment we we talk about personal environment so age age is the biggest risk factor for colorectal cancer 90 percent of colon cancer is diagnosed after the age of 50. obesity can be a contributing factor sedentary lifestyle uh, poorer diets diets higher in like fast foods um, higher processed uh, meats are related to colorectal cancer. Smoking is associated with colorectal cancer, and we have a higher smoking rate here in Northeast Pennsylvania. Decreased uh, physical activity is another factor. You did mention when we talked earlier that you are starting to see a trend towards younger people being diagnosed. Can we talk a little bit about that? Is that something that we're seeing not only locally but nationally? And is anybody wondering why this is happening? Probably about two two years ago, some national studies started to show that there was a trend where we were seeing an increase in uh, colorectal cancer being diagnosed in those under the age of 50. And we're not looking for that disease in those people unless they're at a high risk like we already talked about. So when they are being diagnosed, they're being diagnosed at a later stage because we're not looking for the disease. That was happening nationally, so we decided to take a look at our local data here, and we found the same trend. We found um, in the last two decades, uh, the rate went from five and a half per 100,000 individuals to 7.6 per 100,000 individuals. Now they sound like small numbers, but that's a 39% increase in those two decades. So, so what's going on? We don't really know. Some of the risk factors that we already talked about, we do have a higher prevalence of obesity here. We have a higher prevalence of type 2 diabetes, which is associated with colorectal cancer. Um, and again, poorer diets that are associated with colorectal cancer. Processed food, processed meats uh, seem to be an issue. The bottom line is, Sue, we need more research uh, to find out what's really going on. The other problem with as I said, these younger individuals are being diagnosed at a later stage, so treatment is not as effective. So, you know, some people are saying, do we need to change the screening recommendations? And again, the answer to that is we do need a little bit more research. Although last fall, a study came out of Spain, so this is an international problem. They're seeing the same thing. They're seeing an increase in incidence in colorectal cancer in individuals under 50, and also an increase in polyps. So they're recommending that, you know, we might want to start looking at 
changing our recommendations for screening. But I think there's going to be some more research done before that actually happens. The other thing uh, that we'd like patients to know, we'd like clinicians to know, some of these cancers, probably almost 40% of them in this younger group, are being diagnosed in what we call the distal colon and the rectum. So the lower colon, the end of the colon and the rectum. So clinically, that's something that may be diagnosed on a physical exam, a rectal exam. So what we say to patients, if you're having symptoms, you know, that, that are related to colorectal cancer, rectal bleeding, dark stools, uh, change in bowel habits, uh, diarrhea or constipation that persists, a narrowing of the stool, um, weakness and fatigue that's unexplained, unexplained weight loss. All of those things could be related to colon cancer. So if you're having those symptoms, bring them to your clinician's uh, attention. And clinicians, if you have a young individual presenting with these symptoms, they should consider a malignancy as a possible diagnosis. It's very easy to think, oh, well, it's, it's a bleeding hemorrhoid, it's irritable bowel syndrome, some of the more benign conditions, but we would, we would encourage clinicians to not dismiss it and, and really look at it as, you know, this could be a malignancy and maybe do additional diagnostic testing. More information on Casual Day can be found at cancernepa.org. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. We've all been out in public and watched an adult become frustrated with a child. Sometimes it becomes a bit uncomfortable, and we wonder if we should say or do something. That situation is the basis for the Front Porch Project, administered by the Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance, whose mission is to empower ordinary citizens to do the right thing in the event of seeing something they feel is wrong. The group offered training recently in Wilkes-Barre in partnership with the United Way of Wyoming Valley. We spoke about the work of the Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance with its CEO, Angela Little. PFSA is one of the best kept secrets in Pennsylvania. We're all about protecting children from abuse. And we do that by helping parents be the best parents they can be through education and support. We help mandated reporters of suspected child abuse know what child abuse is, how to identify it, how to properly report it. And then the really cool thing we're here to talk about today is how to help community members play a role in keeping Pennsylvania's kids safe. Okay, let's walk through a little of this because some people probably hear what you have to say and they think to themselves, why do parents need to be educated? I raised my kids and nobody told me. So why is the climate different as we speak today in 2018, what's happening that people may not understand? Well, there's been a lot of shifts in kind of the paradigm of parenting. You know, I'm, I'm pushing my mid-50s now, and, and while I know that's probably hard for you to imagine. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to say. Good answer. Um, the truth is, back in the day, you know, I was raised with kind of the philosophy of to be seen and not heard. And we have become much more fluid in our philosophy around parenting in today's times where, you know, it's much more participatory. It's much more democratic with a lot of parents. And the truth is there are different levels and different types of stressors that impact parents today. Not to say that it was ever easy, but it's a different world. And, you know, social media influences bullying in schools, everything from road rage, you name it. 
all of this coming at our kids and at our parents changes the dance. And I think that there has been a move to accept that premise that things are changing. What do you think some of the things that are happening in society today that have changed? I know you just talked about like the broad-based ones, but can you point out some, some examples for people that just don't get it? Like what is different and what is happening today in parenting? I'm thinking that oftentimes it may be just the the basic survival stuff, like trying to put food on the table and clothe the kids, and especially where we live in Wyoming Valley. I know you work with the United Way here, and there's a lot of poverty and challenge, right? Yeah, that's one of the things we've loved in partnering with the United Way. There are very clear um, associations, positive correlations between poverty, stressors in a family, health issues, um, and the incidence of both domestic violence and child abuse. You know, the reality is we live in a very, very fast-paced world. We just do. Um, A lot of kids want the iPads, they want the iPhones, they want the screen time. All of that makes our communication, both with each other from adult to adult and especially adult to child, very different from how it once was. So it's important that we realize that shift. It's important that we... Realize that in a day and age where we like things in short bites of tweets and and social media posts and where we embrace things like online training, there is really no replacement for people getting together and sharing their experience, which means for groups like Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance, the philosophy around our support and education programs are that, you know, we're going to share the experience together. And while there are parenting curriculums, The truth is we know it's not an easy do steps one through five and your kid's going to be golden and your relationship is going to be great and everyone's going to say, wow, you got the tiger by the tail. It's not like that. It's a trial and error. It's an adjust. And throughout that process, all parents need support. Now, we know now more than ever, a lot of things are brought to the surface. But at the same time, I think that with social media, people feel somehow less humanly connected. And they may try to say, I just don't want to get involved with any of this stuff because they're kind of used to that there's something in between them and the other person. So when they see child abuse, why should they get involved? Let's just talk about people who see things in the supermarket or out at the bus stop or something like that. How should they handle that without too much training. What should they do? Well, that's actually part of what we've been offering in partnership through the United Way here in the Wyoming Valley. It's a training program called the Front Porch Project, which is sponsored by Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance and offered statewide. It's about helping community members. And part of what we have to recognize is that there are barriers to why people don't get involved and some very real, very legitimate concerns around that. What we have to do, however, is remind one another that in one year alone, the last year we have statistics for, 46 children in Pennsylvania were killed. 4,416 were victims of child abuse. So these are kids who, by and large, are not going to be in a position where they can save themselves, okay? It's going to require action on the part of an adult to call Childline, which we highly recommend if you suspect child abuse. That number is 800-932-0313. We have to realize that children um, have only one chance of having their lives be better, and that's if there is 
an adult that intervenes and alerts folks that there's a concern here. So that's why people should get involved. We believe most people want to, but we're not born intrinsically knowing how to do this. And it's a very frightening thing sometimes. So through education of community members with programs like the Front Porch Project, we can teach people very concrete ways to intervene and look out for the safety and well-being of a child, and sometimes, at the same time, supporting the parent or the family. How long does that kind of training take, and what is the crux of the training? The crux of the training um, is really wrapped into about a six-hour day. It brings together folks who kind of explore their own thoughts and experiences about parenting. You know, there's no one right and true proper way to intervene when you think something isn't quite right. But I would bet most of us can recount times we've been at the grocery store and seen an interaction between a parent and a child that made the hair on our neck stand up or made us cringe. And so we ducked down another aisle because we just don't know what to do. And in truth, there are things you can do to de-escalate that moment um, and help the parent not feel judged and maybe make things a little easier for the child. So we're talking about some small, simple steps. And that leads me really to, I think, an important point for listeners to hear. You know, somewhere along the line, we kind of lost our civility a little bit in this society. We used to all kind of look out for each other, hence the name The Front Porch. You know, when I was growing up, neighbors knew what I was doing before my bicycle ever hit the driveway. My mom could have known what I was doing. We've lost a lot of that. And the way to get that back is the same way we lost it, by small little steps of change. And so that's what we try to do at Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance. We try to help people learn skills that they can use then within their own comfort zone to try to keep an eye out for kids and to say, you know what, maybe not my biological child, not my adopted child, but every kid that I lay eyes on, I have some form of responsibility to because I'm an adult and I'm a member of this community and of this state. And we think about how that might be able to break a really unfortunate and long-standing cycle within a family dynamic because there's reasons why people do what they do, and it may be based upon their own previous experience, hence maybe the reason why they do what they do to their children, although a lot of us know that's just not right. Absolutely. And sometimes it's a matter of poor impulse control. Sometimes it's a matter of passing on what you've been exposed to. Sometimes it's as basic as because I can. And we have to acknowledge, too, that especially when you're talking about some of the very horrific cases of child abuse and neglect in this state. There is an element that's called evil that you can't really dismiss when you look at some of this. And you look at the number of uh, folks who work in the school system or some religious institutions and how they have uh, really not respected, cared, or cherished for the children they were responsible for. And that falls into the category of because I could. And what we have to say as a society is, no, you can't. We're not going to allow that. It's not acceptable. What are you seeing in terms of, of change? And what are your your hopes for the future, your dreams for what you do? Well, I think we've had a significant change post-Jerry Sandusky in this state. 
And that was really uh, the light switch that flipped, much like 9-11 did for our homeland security. I don't think we're ever going to go back to a a pre-Jerry Sandusky time with our child welfare system. So we've had a lot of changes in strengthening the law and closing some loopholes. Um, The pendulum tends to go from one end to the next, and it is indeed kind of crashing through the the wall on the opposite end now, where folks realize that it's not okay to turn a blind eye, especially if you're a professional, considered a mandated reporter in this state. You know, I remember the day when we would have never thought to charge someone with failure to report child abuse, and people need to hear today, it's no joke you have a high likelihood, a high probability of being charged if you are aware of child abuse and you don't make a report. So we have people who are, you know, of course, there's some level of motivation out of concern for kids, but there's also a heightened concern about liability and risk and professional standing and and all of those things. So I think people are taking this matter a little more seriously. Um, People are... um, receiving training with a different level of interest in making sure they really understand and focus. And I think our law enforcement uh, in the state is is obviously right in line with that. Uh, we don't hesitate anymore when, when folks aren't uh, doing what they need to do for kids. So it's about um, making everyone aware. It's about encouraging parents to do a little better with kids, keep an eye out, When they tell you they've been harmed, believe them. If we can say that once today, let's say it 5,000 times. If a child discloses abuse to you, believe them and act accordingly. Um, So it's really about parents. It's about professionals and volunteers, and it's about the community at large. We all need to kind of, you know, do this together and, and keep an eye on kids. You do bring up something that I think is significant. In the past, when a lot of these kids would go to an authority figure and they're you know we've seen it in the news across the country and in Pennsylvania there would be that tendency for them to be dismissed or an attempt to silence them because that person is so powerful in the community or who could possibly believe that do you see a change in those little people being believed? I absolutely see that coming. I I don't know that we're completely there yet by any means, but I think that we've made progress with that. And I think the more high-profile cases we have, as disheartening as they are, you know, it, it was hard to look at Jerry Sandusky and say therein lies a monster, but have we seen a greater monster than that in terms of preying on kids? If you look at the U.S. gymnastics and Dr. Nader, you know, again, Here's someone in a position of trust, in a position of power over kids. And there were kids who testified now as young adolescents saying, I told my parent they didn't believe me. I can only imagine how those parents today feel after hearing firsthand the magnitude of what happened in this situation. So I think when we all, through the media, um, experience that and see how that plays out, um, you know, I have a five-year-old granddaughter And I'm telling you, she ever utters a word to me that with anyone she feels not safe, I will act immediately. And I would hope anyone around her would. And I hope that we all do that for kids. What they say, we must believe. Is there anything else we need to know? 
Well, I think what we really want to let folks know about is we're right around the corner from April, which is Child Abuse Prevention Month. Um, on April 4th, uh, Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania, will be turning blue for kids and for the prevention of their abuse. And we hope that every community in Pennsylvania, including those in the Wyoming Valley, would join us. Uh, there will be an outstanding event at the Capitol um, marking the um, introduction of Child Abuse Prevention Month. Also, those children um, who sadly lost their lives as a result of abuse and those who were abuse victims uh, in the last year in Pennsylvania. So there will be an award ceremony for some good news, which is um, community members, professionals, and a member of the media um, who are considered blue ribbon champions for safe kids. So that's our big campaign at PFSAH here, blue ribbon champions for safe kids. We'll be acknowledging those folks who've gone above and beyond, and as a result, kids in Pennsylvania in their neighborhoods and their communities are more safe. We also encourage people to visit our website, pablueribbonchampion.org, to get blue ribbon pins if they'd like. We encourage people to wear blue um, and really do their small part in their neighborhoods uh, to recognize Child Abuse Prevention Month and to take action to help be a part of the solution. Angela Little is president and CEO of Pennsylvania Family Support Alliance. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The Parkland, Florida school shooting happened a little more than a month ago, and the investigation into how it happened has led to discussions on guns, safety, and how the shooter managed to avoid a criminal record and was able to buy a gun. Under the Microscope is a diversion program that Parkland used in conjunction with the Broward County Sheriff's Office that reduced the amount of reportable infractions, including drug use and assault. We spoke recently to Max Eden, senior fellow on education policy at the Manhattan Institute, about alternative discipline in schools. Yeah, so my, my key issue for the past couple of years has been school discipline uh, in general and the, the massive shift in the approach to it that's taken place over the past few years, largely under coercion by the Obama Department of Education. The theory was that the traditional systems of you know, clear rules, clear consequences, if you do something you get suspended, expelled, referred to the police, uh, that that was unfair and, and harming students. So the new way should be to not suspend, not expel, not refer to the police. Um, and the idea being if we can get these statistics down, somehow everything will become better for these kids. But you know, when you look at the case of Nicholas Cruz and you ask yourselves, how is it that all these red flags got raised but, but never got raised to the point where he got on the police's radar, part of the answer was that Broward County uh, explicitly shifted to keep things off the police's radar as part of this larger uh, shift in discipline that I've been examining. Yeah, let's uh, take, talk about your research into that, Max. Um, what, what was happening from um, your look at this? What, what was going on in, in terms of uh, discipline, the police, uh, arrest records, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, so I think the, the, the case was was dramatically overstated, right? The The argument was that uh, the correlation between suspensions and expulsions uh, were somehow related to the bad outcomes that students saw later, somehow caused them, rather than both being reflective of, of bad underlying behavior. So under that assumption, the idea was if you can stop 
you know, punishing kids for doing bad things, it will all get better. Uh, but what I'm seeing uh, across the country at the lower levels is that when students don't think that there are rules anymore, they, their behavior deteriorates. But, but more importantly, uh, when adults in the room face pressure to keep the statistics down, they react in all sort of perverse ways. They, they hide the evidence, they ignore evidence, they don't report things up to the chain they used to. Because uh, instead of keeping safety first as they go about implementing these policies, they're keeping the statistics first over that. Okay, I have to ask you th about the impetus to hide the statistics. I is it financial? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a couple things. It's threat of action from above and, uh, you know, promise of benefit from, from within and around, right? So school districts across the country were told uh, that the federal government might come after you if your rates are too high. So there's, there's a fear that's driving it, uh, but there's also, you know, ambitions that are driving it, because if you get these rates down, you get nice stories in the press. Uh, if you're Superintendent Runcie and you get your arrests down by, you know, no longer arresting kids for very serious things, you can get an invitation to the White House to get congratulated for how dramatically you've improved school policy. So the, there's, a, there's a carrot and a stick here that are both working to try to depress statistics, which unfortunately uh, can prevent records that should exist from actually existing. All right, Max. Um, I, I live in an area where we had one of the worst judicial scandals in history, the Kids for Cash scandal. And I don't know how familiar you are with that in your research, but uh, can, I hip, can I hip you to all this? I'm going to give you the shortest Please. version possible, but I want it to feature all of the elements of how it happened. In the Please. aftermath of the Columbine shootings in uh, 1999, many schools across the country embraced a policy of zero tolerance. In other words, no matter what you brought to school, if it was a nail file, um, a, a Boy Scout knife, whatever, you, there were consequences for that. And there were judges here where we live in Luzerne County who... Um, used the specter of zero tolerance to send many, many, many juveniles to juvenile detention centers. There was a girl here who made a MySpace, I know that sounds old, of her school <laughs> principal. She was locked up. There were kids that were nine and they were taken away in shackles. Somebody defaced a stop sign, et cetera, et cetera. The judges here used that as uh, a technique to actually feather the nest of some local people who had interest, financial interests, in the, in the institutions where, where some of these kids were sent. So for us, when we saw these kinds of diversion programs, like the ones used down in Broward County, actually come into play where we live, we embraced them because so many kids had been sent away to, uh, to prison as children, and we thought that there was a better way. So I just wanted you to know that oftentimes when you have a situation like Columbine, there is an overcorrection. And now it seems to be, in, in, in our view maybe, that this has uh, vacillated, if you will, to the other side. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that um, Everything that you said, is, there are also things that I've, I've researched and is true, and there was a major overcorrection because 
all of, all of a sudden the incentives were, were shifted both by federal policy and by public fear and by pressure. And so rather than act kind of responsibly with an eye towards the students in front of them, you had adults react in all of these kind of self-serving ways. And this is where the, the impetus for the discipline reforms came from, the impetus between, behind Broward's reforms, the impetus behind uh, the Obama administration's actions. It all came from a very, very good place, uh, trying to correct what was an overcorrection. But the fear is kind of we're, we're on the flip side of that coin by putting in similar pressures uh, in government and kind of from activists that we're doing the same thing except the other way. And so that kind of what I've been doing for the past couple of years has been looking into this and trying to document warning signs that we might have turned kind of zero tolerance into zero trust of, of teachers and principals to handle things the right way. Do you have in your research, Max, a place where this is being handled properly using what you know? To my mind, the, the most promising place for this is in Chicago. Uh, because Chicago is unique amongst major school districts in that it has administered a consistent school climate survey every year and has not changed the questions. In other districts where they've had these, they change the questions so you can't actually know, you know, how many students from one year to the next actually feel safe and welcome and respected. If you can know those things, then you can properly balance trying to decrease an over-reliance on punishment with maintaining school safety and school order. Uh, and a positive school culture, but if you if you don't have an eye on both of those metrics, there's a big risk of an overcorrection uh, and getting applauded for reducing suspensions, reducing arrests, even if that means schools are getting less safe. So if school districts can have an eye on both, uh, I think that there's a real shot that this can be done very well and very responsibly. But unfortunately, while we have statistics for suspensions everywhere, we have you know student and teacher survey data in very few places. Okay, so what would really make this uh, more consistent was uh, long-term data that, sh that shows um, using evidence that something is working, right? Yeah, no, I mean, if, if, if you have a school and the suspensions go down by, by 20% over three years, uh, that is either good or bad, depending on whether just as many kids feel safe, more kids feel safe, or, or fewer kids feel safe. And Unless you know that, you can't know if the policy is succeeding. But if you can know that, and if you can watch and monitor these things, then, then you can do so very responsibly. Now, are there any kind of things going on in, in the, the school infrastructure? I, I want to use the word infrastructure here, Max. School infrastructure that makes students feel safer and doesn't make them feel like they're uh, going to the penitentiary for the day. It's all, it's all really about the the culture that's set between principals and teachers. Um, if principals and teachers can, prevent, can present a, a united and a supportive front, kids pick up on that and they become part of it and then there becomes a, you know, an esprit de corps about one's school. Uh, the worry both ways, both in the zero tolerance way and in what I call the zero trust way is, you know, in, in a zero tolerance setting, the teachers don't actually have the discretion or the judgment to, you know, deal with the kids as the human beings that are in front of them. But in the zero exclusion, zero trust way, uh, the teachers, quite frankly, often can't even send the kids to talk to the principal, and it can set principals and teachers against each other. Wow. So, so really the key thing isn't, isn't infrastructure. It's the, the relationships between the adults and the questions we should be asking is, you know, how can we improve those relationships and that culture at the adult level that will filter down to the kids? We had a woman on yesterday, Max, who suggested 
the mediation process should be introduced into schools so that uh, there is an individual in the middle of the administration and the students. What do you think about that as an idea? Yeah, no, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm supportive of that in, in theory. The, the problem that I see quite frequently is that, um, you know, one tool is taken away from teachers, but other supports aren't really set up. And the reason why we see that happening is because we see this happening as an explicit attempt to, to lower indicators of punishment. Uh, but if, you know, if the policy were, let's just add more supports and, and add more adults who can try to take a more holistic view and uh, address the root causes and, and focus on training the adults with extra, extra techniques and putting extra adults with a, with a broader perspective in the room, I think that's a very positive step so long as you know, the key is school culture, uh, not the statistics. Yeah, and I think that uh, now, we hear this a lot, Max, now in the current climate that we live in, there seems to be no respite for kids from certain things. And this has to do with uh, the Internet, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever. But how can, I, I don't know, it seems to me that this, um, this, this individual, Nick, I hate saying his name, let's just say this individual, um, he left a pretty big electronic footprint across the uh, internet and I'm wondering what else can be done to let kids know of a way to also report that if they see it because they may often see it when adults don't. Yeah, I mean the the, the key is that that they feel comfortable reporting it to the adults and they would feel confident that the adults would do something about it. Um, you know, one can can litigate the particulars of his disciplinary record and the the you know the policies before and the policies after and to me that paints a clear picture but the bigger problem is how was it that that this stuff never made its way to the teachers or if it did how was it that it never made its way from the teachers to the police and what i fear uh, and hopefully more investigation will will, will either alleviate or, or confirm this fear uh, is that there might have been a culture amongst the adults to, oh, well, if it's on social media, we don't really need to touch that because that's not our responsibility to keep track of it. Uh, some schools do. Some schools don't. Some schools take that stuff very, very seriously. Some schools wash their hands of it. Uh, and I think it's something that you know, kids should feel comfortable that if they put it on the teacher's radar, uh, that, will, that will actually mean something. They won't just be tattling. They'll be doing something useful and productive. They'll be seeing something and saying something. Okay, so we, we, the, the thing is to get the things on the radar and take them seriously despite the fact that it may have uh, adverse financial consequence, right? I mean, money can't be the end-all and be-all of this stuff, Max, right? No, safety has to be first, and and you know we should give adults who 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 care, who have devoted their lives to to teaching kids, uh, the discretion to do what's right. We shouldn't we shouldn't prejudice them either to punish automatically or to you know keep shy away from punishment automatically. We should simply let these adults do what they think is right, given given what they're presented by, by the students. All right. And if you have time, we uh, have been told by listeners that the uh, documentary piece that was done about the judicial system here that punished a lot of juveniles in some uh, very unfortunate ways, the Kids for Cash documentary is on uh, YouTube for free. So if you have a chance, Oh, I'd Max, love to see it. Yeah, yes, thank you. I, I wish you would do some uh, looking at that. And even if you want to you know, get back to me with your impressions of of what you saw about that, because I think this thing did whipsaw between Columbine and now, 
um, in a, a an amazing way. I mean, you always have an overreaction, and uh, we may be in the opposite of what happened post Columbine right now. Yeah, so. And- and, and my hope is that we don't we don't re overreact. You know, my, yeah. my my hope is that we we rather than try to try to prescribe uh, or threaten or bribe schools to do one thing or the other, that that we realize that uh, you know the kind of the popular responses to to horrors of one stripe or another can often do more harm than good when they take away teacher discretion and judgment. Max Eden is a senior fellow on education policy at the Manhattan Institute. He spoke to us about diversion programs in schools. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.